Moscato, there is a very serious surge in Russia and in many parts of Eastern Europe. Germany is experiencing, Great Britain has been experiencing significant surges. Warning, all the northern states, we may be experiencing similar surges if we're not very careful. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill and Fred, uh, once again, thanks for taking time. It's been an eventful week. Uh, we have uh, the approval of the kids' vaccine. We have what appears to be a very significant breakthrough in um, in the treatment protocols with the Pfizer drug. And as businesses uh, begin to reopen and with it uh, questions about travel, I know you've been following some of the statistics out of uh, Europe and have opined, at least to me, uh, about your questions about the reliability of statistics coming out of Asia. But uh, why don't we uh, start with the uh, Pfizer uh, drug approval and what, what those results are showing. Well, so David, there's no approval yet. What, what has happened so far is that uh, Pfizer at the news release level has, has released that they are going to be applying for emergency use authorization very soon with, if assuming everything was to go well, they, they think they could get to an authorization before the end of the year. But what is really exciting about this protease inhibitor is that they see a, an 89% effectiveness in decreasing the progression from infection to serious disease or death in people who have uh, significant health risks. That's the only group that they've been testing it in, but that's very, very important. The ongoing group that uh, of testing that has not yet had any uh, information released is using it as a prophylaxis in people who have been exposed. Now, that may even have larger implications in terms of controlling the epidemic, whereas the the use in at-risk population is going to have huge implications in terms of saving lives. Yeah, I think this is uh, far preferable to uh, the monoclonal antibody infusions, which have been used for the purpose of preventing hospitalizations. And I can speak from personal experience, are logistically extremely challenging um, to get an IV infusion site. Um, most infusion sites are, are designed for cancer chemotherapy, and clearly you do not usually want to have COVID-19 patients in your cancer center. So uh, they had to s- have separate sites, and there have been some, and then the timing is very important. Uh, it should be in the first five to six days for the monoclonals. And uh, these these two drugs, Merck and Pfizer, are both pills and serve the same purpose. And I really like the Pfizer because it is a protease inhibitor. And the protease inhibitor, it's highly unlikely that will select for any mutations. One of the concerns has been for the Merck drug, it's a, it causes an inaccurate uh, reproduction of the RNA, which causes the virus not to be able to uh, replicate. And that, there is some concern that you may develop uh, mutants that will render that drug resistant. Protease inhibitors, far less likely to develop resistance and to cause mutations that might be harmful. Thanks both for that oversight. And Bill, uh, sorry for getting out uh, ahead of the gates uh, with respect to the approval. 
because what I was reading was that they had applied for emergency authorization. Uh, so obviously some um, expedited review. Is it uh, your view that this is likely to get approval by the end of the year? Is that basically the timetable? Well, that's that's exactly when their uh, CEO made the announcements uh, yesterday. That's he said that he saw a timeline that would uh, have approval by the end of the year. Uh, the one other note is that it has to be given in conjunction with an older antiviral, and that's actually an HIV drug uh, called ritonavir. Um, and that that is one one of the things that makes us work more effectively. So, you know, with the with the Merck drug, uh, the Molu, I probably won't pronounce it quite right, but the Molnupiravir. Um, one of the issues with that was a lot of concern, not data, but a lot of concern that because of the mechanism of action, um, as Fred just discussed, that could it have other side effects that may be a little more difficult to to recognize somewhere down the line. Um, that's not the case with the protease inhibitor, which is a class of medications that we've been using for years with, with a very good safety profile. Yeah, the uh, ritonavir, I, I'm familiar with that because uh, I've been remotely involved with HIV therapy. And what that does is it inhibits the actually the cytochrome P450 system, which metabolizes many drugs. The only problem with that, if you're on any medications that were, that are uh, broken down by that same pathway, metabolized by that same pathway, there is a, a risk of drug-drug interactions you'll have to keep in mind. Let me uh, switch topics. We've talked about vaccine being available for children uh, 5 to 12. Uh, I happened to hear uh, an interview of our uh, Surgeon General uh, talking about this. Uh, I will tell you, he, he sounded almost ebullient that this was uh, going to happen. Uh, referenced, I believe he had a five-year-old son uh, who was uh, going to receive the vaccine. Uh, he was optimistic about the nationwide supply. He was optimistic about uh, the sources where people could go for the vaccine. But he uh, was also very, very clear in uh, discussing um, both the efficacy uh, of, of the vaccine, the data they're seeing uh, around the safety uh, for, for children. I recognize that it may be somewhat limited, but nonetheless, he was very optimistic. And he also was very, very clear, as you guys have been, about talking uh, in terms of risk benefits that... Um, even under the worst case scenarios of what people fear as side effects, uh, the probability of those very same side effects impacting people who are not vaccinated far, far greater than, um, than taking the vaccine. So I thought very, very clear um, and quite frankly, very optimistic about the availability, the efficacy and the safety of the vaccine so I think it would be great if our audience could grab your views on this as well. Well, one of the one of the important things, all the things that you said, David, but also by adding the children 5 to 11, that adds about 28 million people, which is just over 8% of the population, to those who are eligible to receive vaccine. 
And when you start adding that in, you start adding that to the population that we already have vaccinated, we're going to start getting, especially in some areas of the country, we'll start getting near to the range where you, we may start to see, um, if we're not already seeing, herd immunity effects. You know, I think over the past a month to six weeks, we you haven't even heard the term herd immunity. Um, I'm sure Fred will probably have some comment on this, but I think that's because the sense is that with Delta, we would need to get to a herd immunity, to a immunity rate of somewhere north of 90% of the population, either vaccinated or uh, having had the disease. And not only that, but because we know that immunity is not perfect, and we know that immunity wanes, we'd have to get to 90% of the population at the same time in order to get herd immunity effects. And that's probably just never going to happen. But still, if we can start getting upward of 75% of the population, which is comparable to what they've, they have now in Israel, um, that appears to be enough to start driving the overall COVID disease rate down towards very low numbers. We're probably not going to get to zero but it's going to drive it down towards very low numbers. Uh, I agree with Bill completely. And uh, one of the things that Dr. Walensky of the CDC pointed out is even though the series studying the 5 to 11-year-olds is not huge, there's every reason to believe that those that are uh, 12 to 18 would have the same, virtually the same side effects. And they're really the safety profile in 12 to 18 has been excellent, other than the um, uh, myocarditis. And, and it's interesting, there have been uh, no reports of myocarditis in the younger age group with the one-third dosage that is being used. So those are all encouraging. With regards to herd immunity, um, it's not an all-or-none thing. As you get to a certain level, you'll see a drop-off, and the reproductive rate will go down as more and more people and it was very interesting. There was a very nice simulation uh, by Johns Hopkins and the University of Florida in Lancet Infectious Diseases about uh, uh, three or four weeks ago, which showed uh, by simulation that if Texas and Florida had reached 76%, and Florida was at about 59% at the time of the simulation, their, their surges would not have occurred. If that had been the case in Florida, there would have been 16,000 fewer deaths. And to put that in perspective, uh, Surfside, the condominium, uh, high-rise condominium that collapsed, killed 98 people. That means you could have saved 167 Surfsides. So this would have been a tremendous uh, saving of lives. And so I do think that when we get all of these children uh, vaccinated, we could certainly achieve 76% and hopefully prevent the surges. And the issue that Bill pointed out is the waning immunity and some that have been vaccinated. So it's going to have to be supplemented with boosters as well. And on the myocarditis issue, one of the other interesting things about that is when you look at the older kid data and you, you break down the older kid data even, you find that the myocarditis was happening primarily in the 16 to 18-year age group and dropped off significantly in the 12 to 12 to 15 age group. So we don't know what that means for the even younger kids. We're hoping that that, that trend would continue, that even younger kids, fewer cases, plus 
it's that the 12 year old is getting the full dose, the um, the five to 11 year old is getting the the one third dose. So that's going to uh, hopefully that'll mean that the primary ad- adverse event of concern, myocarditis and pericarditis, uh, will be very very minimal in that group. We'll have to wait and see what the data is because the initial sample size was only a few thousand patients and they saw zero count them zero ad serious adverse events in in those few thousand patients. Uh, so that's very encouraging. With regards to the Surgeon General uh, being so excited for his children, I actually, we I was participating at a conference where one of the pediatric uh, uh, infectious disease specialists uh, with COVID has a 10-year-old daughter. He expressed the exact same sentiment. He said, I will have peace of mind, peace of mind that my daughter will not get any complication uh, from this infection peace of mind that she will not bring it, uh, unlikely to bring it back to the family, and peace of mind that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and we may be able to, uh, school may become more normal, and that is, uh, eventually, if enough people are vaccinated, masks will not be need to be worn, and social distancing will not be necessary. Uh, to be clear on that point, though, the CDC has has been fairly consistent in the release of their information regarding the new vaccination for kids. They said, this does not mean that you can take masks off in school, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Exactly. It's not until the reproductive rate throughout the community is very, very low, then we can do that. It will become lower when we start to achieve herd immunity. And just as a reminder, the audience, the uh, myocarditis is I'll put it in a layman's term. It's it's a condition that involves the inflammation of of the heart. Did, did I remember that correctly, Bill and Fred? Yes, yes. And, and to that point, uh, David, um, I also uh, the pediatrician explained to me uh, what happens if a child gets the multi-system inflammatory syndrome. Um, the myocardium can be severely impaired to the point of irreversible damage. And so the, the the virus itself and the reaction of the virus is much more a much higher probability of causing severe myocarditis than the vaccine would ever, and the severity is is considerably worse. And that almost all the cases associated with the vaccine have only lasted three or four days, seem to be reversible with corticosteroids. So uh, once again, I I love to sum up concerns around side effects around the vaccine are omnipresent if you contract the virus. And what the statistics are showing overwhelmingly, not just before vaccines were approved, but as they are rolled out, used, the FDA continues to gather the data, and overwhelmingly, and we're not talking 51 versus 49%, we are talking in the high 90s, I've heard Fred, you and Bill, for that uh, there are no instances, very few instances of side effects, and whatever side effects there are, uh, they have been treatable and reversible. And that's really the calculus that people have to keep in their minds when they're deciding whether to take the vaccine themselves or uh, to have their children vaccinated. David, I just, just, whenever I say side effects are treatable and reversible, 
that doesn't mean all the time. You know, it's yes, always, never say always or never in medicine. But right. you're right. The great bulk of people, it's treatable and reverse or reversible. But from a risk reward calculus. And, yes, um, exactly. And, and the data continues to be analyzed by um, the FDA and its panel of experts. So this is an ongoing process. And that's how people have to think about it. I'm not going to get into politics. I'm not going to get into football. Uh, but I do have to mention, um, you know, the fact that there are prominent people in our society that people respect, they revere, they follow, etc., who have made decisions that are not evidence-based. And they're based on sometimes intuition, sometimes disinformation, sometimes inaccurate information, sometimes information that's pummeled to, pummeled out there to sell various products. But the situations, and I, I think what's um, important to underscore for everyone, uh, because there are influencers in our society who, who deservedly have our respect and have our attention, but the decisions overwhelmingly that are being made not to be vaccinated are not based upon the evidence or the data. And I think that's a very, very simple takeaway. I assume both of you agree with that conclusion. I do. And, and one of the um, senses I get is somehow they think they're brave if they resist the vaccine. This is, has nothing to do with about bravery. And uh, having given 750 of these vaccines to individuals, it's a tiny little needle. It doesn't hurt at all. And the side effects are, are very short-lived and very mild. So uh, g give me a break on that bravery stuff. I, and I agree completely. As, as you know, I, I have concerns with the overall effects of mandating, but that doesn't affect my belief in the importance of the vaccine and the benefits of the vaccine. I'm going to have Emily, uh, who is our, uh, truly our host and editor, she'll um, link to this podcast some terrific coverage around um, Tyson Foods and how they approached vaccines. Uh, they did it with mandates before, um, really before there were mandates. It was a matter of economic and business necessity because their workers uh, were getting very sick and were working close proximity of of each other, uh, as uh, as is the case in food processing plants, but it's it's worth um, for our audience to read uh, how Tyson approached it and what the outcome and the results were. David, while you're on to suggesting links, um, I would also recommend to people to look at a, a article in today's um, I'm sorry, yesterday's. Uh, Wall Street Journal that it was a physician and a neurologist discussing uh, the boosters and why not all young healthy people need to rush out to get a booster. That for young healthy people, the additive benefit of the booster is very small. And the and he was not saying that it may not be good in the long run, but he was just saying right now it's just worth it's worthwhile just taking a taking a deep breath and let's get the data in. 
Without question, the booster is necessary and important for anyone with risk factors, including just risk factors associated with age. Um, I, and I believe also with risk factors that are associated with your living conditions, whether that's your home or your occupational uh, condition. If you have lots of contact with people that you don't know whose status it is, that they, uh, their vaccine status is, then you really ought to be thinking about a booster. But that's not everybody. And young, healthy people don't need to be rushing out to get a booster. Now, I don't, Fred, do you have a thought about that? Um, yeah, I agree with that. It's uh, the young people are going to have a vigorous response whether or not they have the booster. But just to uh, switch back to Tyson, I remember the out, uh, very frightening outbreaks in these meatpacking factories where almost everyone got clinically ill and there were several deaths in each of these factories. So what that meant is the workers actually saw the direct consequences of this virus. There was no question that they would underestimate the danger. And I think this was a key element. So when Tyson said, we want to take care of you, we want to prevent you from getting, uh, being hospitalized and dying, they appreciated that. And if once you understand the severity, the potential severity of this virus, particularly in closed factory environments, you should be grateful to your, uh, the, your employer for wanting to protect you. And the only way to protect you is for everyone in that environment to become vaccinated. Uh, as we think about that, uh, there was also an announcement um, from the federal government about mandates for um, the workplace. And I think it, it, the cutoff was uh, 100 workers or more and for the vaccine to be mandatory. Your thoughts on that? I, and Bill, I, I recognize, I think you and I are at least uh, politically aligned on this fact that uh, when you get into these mandates, you create all sorts of consequential and unintended consequential uh, events. Yeah. yeah, not only that, there's going to be a lot of confusion about this because now there are two federal mandates out there. Right. One is the is the brand new um, emergency temporary standard that says by January 24th, 60 days from yesterday, um, you, you must ha be vaccinated or your company has to have a plan in place for an ongoing testing program. We weekly testing, I believe. Right. We, a, weekly, a weekly testing program. Um, but then there is also... At the same time, there's an executive order that affects all companies that have any government contracts. And that's actually a huge number of companies. We're de I deal with a couple of companies that have these little tiny government contracts. But because they have these little tiny contracts, their entire company is bound by the executive order. At least that's what their counsel believes. Um, and so now then the, and the, the, the executive order and the ETS don't say exactly the same thing. The biggest difference being the executive order does not give an option for testing. It simply says, you know, thou shalt be vaccinated, period, end of story. And that's, a, that's very complicated. So it's going to be interesting to see how that all works out. I mean, I have heard discussion that the the executive order may be modified to say follow the ETS, um, but that's you think you would have thought think they would have thought of that going into it, and that hasn't been the case. Yeah, OSHA, OSHA has uh, just released its recommendations two days ago, 
and uh, they recommend you either have to have the vaccine by that date or uh, testing has to occur once a week. And the key thing, I think, is that the company does not pay have to pay for those tests. The individuals who do not want to have the vaccine will have to uh, purchase tests and prove that they are negative once a week. So that puts the onus, so to speak, on the employee who does not want to become vaccinated. And I think that is the appropriate place to place that responsibility, the appropriate uh, person to set that responsibility to. Noted. Uh, Now, in the time remaining, uh, as businesses uh, reopen, uh, the question of travel and global travel um, also arises. And uh, putting aside various country requirements around quarantining and um, who comes in, who doesn't. Fred, I know um, you've been looking at data coming out of Europe. um, And Bill, you've also uh, been watching uh, broadly the data around the world. So uh, maybe you can give our audience a sense of what is happening outside the United States. Oh, I could start. Uh, The uh, Europe now, particularly Eastern Europe, is uh, experiencing a surge again. And I think what's happened is it's gotten colder and drier and individuals are forced to be inside in close, uh, closed environments where there is not as good circulation and therefore they are uh, coming in contact with infectious aerosol and becoming ill. So, and then in a, particularly in Eastern Europe, there uh, has not been a high vaccine uptake one of the countries that's uh, been really suffering recently is Russia. And I found it very interesting in that, as we all know, the USSR and Russia have been promoting propaganda, disinformation for decades. So what is that? What, so what, how does that translate? Well, it turns out the public don't believe anything they hear from the government anymore. So when the government said, you need a vaccine and this virus is, is dangerous, they don't believe them. And so as a consequence, they aren't trusting the vaccine. They are not getting the vaccine. And so there is a very serious surge in Russia and in many parts of Eastern Europe. And even uh, in Germany is experiencing, Great Britain has been experiencing uh, significant surges and have not dropped down the way they had expected to. So I think the closed environment and warning and the Northeast, actually the, all the Northern states, we may be experiencing similar surges if we're not very careful. So Russia is continuing to see new new highs. Um, not quite record. Record was a few days last week, but it's not coming down yet. It's still staying up at, at very high levels to the point that there is some evidence of social disruption in Russia. And not only do they not trust the vaccine, but they have reason not to trust the vaccine because the, the, the Russian vaccines that are available, which are the primary ones being used in Russia, are just not, not as good. They're like the Sinovac vaccines. They're just not as good as the the vaccines available um, in other parts of of the world. Um, Fortunately, the UK is starting to turn down, but just over the past um, week to 10 days. And it's really corresponding with happening uh, just a few weeks after they started to immunize large numbers of older children. They're still not doing younger children, but they are starting to do, do older children, interestingly, with only one dose. 
Um, and so it'll be, you know, time will tell how that's going to work for them. Um, but they they are at least starting to, to come down. In Asia, um, the uh, South Korea has been very stable at a little bit higher level than they were early on in the epidemic. As you may remember, South Korea did very, very well initially. They're running at about four cases per 100,000 per day, which is certainly not in a dangerous level at all. But they're not, they're not able to drop it to zero. Japan, which had a huge epidemic um, in right around the time of the Olympics, has driven their case rate to near zero. And they did that by going from near zero on vaccinations up to a very high um, vaccination percentage. The one interesting uh, area in, in Asia is Singapore. Singapore, which did very well and applied kind of the, the typical heavy-handed Singaporean policing of their population and um, and has a high vaccination rate, and yet they are still seeing a case rate that's on the order of 50 per 100,000 per day, you know, about double what we typically were thinking of as being a very high case rate. So it's really, it's kind of unclear. They're using good vaccines in, in Singapore, except early on in the epidemic, they used a lot of Sinovacs. Um, so that may be part of the issue. But they're coming back now kind of with a, a cleanup round with um, uh, mRNA boosters. So hopefully they're going to get their, uh, get things going the right direction soon. But they're, they're still having a hard time of it. Uh, and then lastly is Australia. Um, Australia continued to see a uh, significant increase in cases up until the middle of last month when a combination of uh, vaccination programs and uh, social programs to keep down circulation. They've been fairly um, strict on on societal circulation um, in Australia. And that is starting to bring down their caseload. In the last uh, minute or two, what should we be looking for in the week ahead? You know, there really is is not any new specific news that's on the horizon. You know, over the past month, we've been talking about when are we going to hear about the emergency temporary standard? When are we going to hear about the kids? When are we going to hear about the rules on boosters? Well, he got all that. The, the next big news item that will be that I think is is a little further out on the horizon, or not not even that far, is going to be approval of the antivirals, the um, molnupiravir and the new Pfizer antiviral. Um, that's going to come probably sometime probably sometime over the course of December, maybe a little bit earlier on the molnupiravir. Um, and then the the one other thing that's probably right around the first of the year may be approval of vaccinations for little kids, six months to four years. Yeah, I, was, I, think, that, I was going to say, Fred, just to, um, yeah. Bill, I, that, I was trying to give you uh, an underhand uh, pitch uh, because I was reading about the possibility of a vaccine for those under five uh, years of age. So thanks for raising that. Go ahead, Fred. I'm sorry for Yeah, that's uh, the other issue, I think, is what percentage of children ages 5 to 11 will end up being vaccinated and how the parents are going to react. Uh, right now, I think it's about 25 to 30 percent say they definitely are going to get the give the vaccine, get their children vaccinated. But then that leaves a huge number that are still waffling. And it'll be very interesting to see how that all plays out and whether or not uh, in the schools whether it will be whether vaccine will be mandated, as are all other vaccines, 
many of which are against diseases that are not as serious and dangerous as as SARS-CoV-2 is. Okay. In closing, I'll remind also uh, the audience, uh, Jay Powell, um, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, um, was interviewed extensively or commented extensively uh, this week um, about the economy, interest rates, etc., and, and made a very clear point, which is that we're not uh, out of this yet. There are still significant consequences on our economy, on the supply chain. He specifically further cited to the Delta variant and the fact that the Federal Reserve is uh, watching to see if other variants might emerge. So um, not that anyone needs a reminder, but, um, you know, the consequences of uh, this virus are certainly medical. We've witnessed the political. Uh, there's the psychological and, uh, again, the financial. So having the insights, Bill and Fred, uh, that you bring to the table uh, in terms of what the data is showing, the efficacy of vaccines, how people are responding to all this uh, are valuable on many, many levels. Long-winded way of saying thanks. Uh, stay safe, and we look forward to speaking with you again next Friday. Thank you, David. Thanks, David. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.